0: that 's why I think the physical world also needs attention and maybe even more boldness and more uh, tactile tactility and less efficiency because we have this other world we have the digital world, so I have to set something against it or next to it that is is as strong as the digital world. So, of course, I'm I'm uh, looking and seeing what's happening in the digital world and try to use the benefits of it. But I am the one who's trying to enrich the, the, the stickiness of the physical world.
1: Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a journalist for nearly 20 years, and this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, design, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. A quick programming note, stay up to date on all of the latest episodes of The Grand Tourist by signing up with your email online at thegrandtourist.net. My guest today is a designer's designer, someone who has been so incredibly influential on what we make and how we elevate the ordinary with design, Hella young Arias. Hella has encouraged the design world to think hard about sustainability and materiality, especially when it comes to textiles, and how the small things can make a big impact. As she famously said with her signature Dutch frankness to Design Week magazine in 2015, there's too much shit design. And the industrial designer brings her keen eye to something often seen as ephemeral and superfluous, color. To her, the choice isn't an afterthought, but an integral part of the design process. Hella's career began in the 90s as a member of the influential and experimental design group Drogue, and since then she's done everything from the Delegates Lounge at the United Nations in New York, to the interiors of the jets for the Dutch national airline KLM, numerous museum exhibitions about her work, a decades-long collaboration with mega-brand Vitra as the Art Director of Colors and Materials, and a career-long collaboration with textile brand Maharam. Her latest was an exhibition last summer at the Gropius Bau in Berlin called Woven Cosmos, where Hella and her studio, which she has always rightly called a lab, created numerous experiments in textiles, more akin to art than design, and even created their own working looms for display. More on that later. I caught up with Hella from her home in Berlin to talk about her life growing up on a farm, what her early experimental works can still teach us today, and the one thing she'd like to make a change to design if she were queen for a day. I've read a lot about your work, um, but know little about your sort of early life. I, I read that I that you grew up on a farm in the Netherlands. Is that is that true?
0: Yes, I grew up uh, in a farm in the Netherlands, in a small village outside the village, and uh, with three brothers. So I was the only girl in the family, and my mother also was one of the three brothers. One, I had only three brothers so uh it was a household with a lot of hard working and no cultural we didn't visit any museums or film watching films or listen to music it was just a very simple country life
1: <laughs> and as you and as you grew up what uh, how did that eventually you know transition to you learning to study design i I had read somewhere that you wanted to be a carpenter at first or you were studying carpentry
0: yes uh so i knew because i was raised in the 70s so i was always with my friends sitting on the couch and you know knitting and macrame and changing my room so i knew i was very creative that was also in the air so a hands-on uh hobbies that we all uh, tried uh, so I knew I was creative but uh, I didn't know exactly what to do with this talent or this craft well first yeah there is a lot to to, to talk about because I also have a gap of five years unemployment because it was the crisis at that time. Uh, Nobody had a job, but it was for me so freeing. And it was also, uh, I I learned so much about myself in that period. Um, So I tried a lot of things and on a certain moment I thought, well, carpentry is something that I like very much. And I did this uh, carpentry course and then I thought, well, I want to be more creative. So I went to the design academy, but they didn't take me in the first year because I was too technical because I only showed my... technical drawings from the carpentry uh, workshop and then I worked for a year uh, as a creative therapist uh, in a wood workshop and then I replied again so I did a lot of workshops in drawing and painting and so on in this year and then they took me
1: and and what what appealed to you about uh, the design academy were there any designers that you were looking up to at that point that you that you sort of you know were who were your your heroes
0: yeah well it was all new for me so you know this uh, when i started the academy i didn't know anything about design i only knew i don't want to go to an art school it's too free for me i want to have some boundaries uh so that i can be creative from within the boundaries uh so i didn't know anything about design uh and in that at that moment, Memphis was the big uh, movement in Italy, so I was really excited about all the colors and the work of Mandini and Sotzas. So that was my uh, I grew up in this realm, and uh, this was was what excited me, but doing the design academy when I started, I thought I wanted to do appliances, technical appliances, you know why so <laughs> but uh yeah uh during the during the course i I knew I had more talent for other things, so I was much more artistic uh interested and uh and and yeah trying to find my own language that was the hard part in the academy um because i yeah, I didn't know. I I was not so sure about what my language or what what I could add to this design world. That was my that was the, the most difficult topic and still is, I must be honest.
1: <laughs> and and after after school, you worked briefly at at uh, Drogue. Can you can you explain to the listener what that brand represented at the time in, in those sort of early days and, and, and what you did there
0: well drogue design was a an in, it was a platform uh, with two uh, curators uh, and they picked uh, objects that were changing something I've had a certain mentality it has a humor in it it, it looked at design in a totally different way so they picked the two people this two one was our professor at the design academy so they took your work and they placed it it in the context of other uh, interesting design objects and they showed it around in the world. So we didn't see each other. We didn't meet each other often. So we saw each other in Milano when all the work was together in one exhibition. But during the year, we only met once or twice. So it was not a company, but it just was more an initiative that I belonged to. And uh, so, and the in those years, you... It was very, yeah, it was everybody in the group had funding from the Dutch government to uh, make this work and to develop, uh, an handwriting or an oeuvre or, uh, yeah, a, a group of objects that was really, uh, of my own interest, my own initiative. And often droog design, the platform took the objects and showed it around.
1: And what did you design for them?
0: Uh, I designed, I think it started with uh, the rubber vases. So I didn't design the vase itself. I copied the a vase uh, and only used a new material. So rubber, it was polyurethane, just to tell the world, like, you know, you don't need to have a new, to design a new shape. Only make it in another material. And then the whole approach change. So I wanted to make it in a plastic that looks old, uh, so an antique plastic because plastic always looks like young and hygienic. And how can I make antique plastic? And I mm. used a, a shape that uh, was already existing. That was so new to think in that way. You know, design was all about shape and forms and so on. So that was the first thing they took. And then they took the whole range of imperfections. So the, the surface that I did also initiated on my own. So sur- the surface, uh, of plates and cups so not as as how you could buy at that at that moment you could only buy this very nice 80 pieces of uh, ceramics of crockery uh, so i wanted to have something that i that i found that was not so perfect that was uh, had a, a individual handwriting a craft but industrially pr- produced so the the shapes were in the Kiln and the temperature was too high, so all the plates were a little bit crooked, a little bit out of shape, and that made uh, every piece individual. Although it was in a serial series, made in a series, and I think that was the start of thinking in imperfection and how can you make an interesting marriage between craft and industry. So uh, this is this was a project they took, and they took this project with uh, about archive. So I went to a museum and I asked for old charts out of the mid-ages and I made new pots for it and I uh, glued the old chart on top of it and made this series of based on archive so how can we build upon archives This also still a topic that is on my mind now and also imperfection that was on that particular moment so new you know mm-hmm. you can't imagine because now it is like a, a it is a marketing buzzword it is it's no longer something that is exciting uh, it, it it is our new normal let's say that way but at that particular moment and and about authenticity and about craft and, and giving giving industrial products and, and human touch uh, something that you can relate to as a consumer so all those topics there are still in my uh, oeuvre and at that moment I didn't have any words I was just doing it from intuition and later on I'm building upon this idea and it's still relevant for me
1: and when you first started your studio in the 90s can you take me back a little bit into what was in your head at the time were you what were your goals I mean you you, you call it all your call you you call your studio a lab. I don't know if you did back then uh, in the very beginning, um, but what were your sort of like you know, as someone who starts their own company, they their own studio, they must have like a you know a mission, a personal mission of what they wanted to to do in the industry. What what was your what was your goal when you started your studio?
0: When I started my studio, it was uh, started as a lab, uh, and I wanted to search and play and 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 find out. Um how can I uh I really wanted to change something from within the industry. So uh at first I made the project because nobody was calling me for a project. So the first years uh I, I was just so dedicating in making and, and and finding out what is a human what is a human touch, how can you change a certain craft into an industrial system. How does production work? So I did a lot of research. Uh, repair was a topic. There was so much going on. I was really like uh, in a bubble uh, of, of, of my own creative imagination and, and interest. So, and on a certain moment, people started to call. So, uh, and industry was calling. So uh, the first uh, phone call was from a harem. They asked me to do uh, fabric, fabric, because they had the they celebrated uh, whatever how many years of their anniversary of their company so it, d- it didn't have to be a, a commercial product so I thought well then I, I'm very interested in in stretching the idea of repeat so in textile you o- always have a repeat of three centimeters and then the pattern repeats so I thought I would like to do it in a three meter repeat so the pattern is three meter and then it repeats uh, and that was you know, it's very easy to do production wise, but it was so difficult to sell a product like that because how, how does a customer know how, the, how their sofa will look like if the repeat is three meters? But it was in the end a very commercial success because the idea was, uh exciting and people wanted to take the risk to to have a, a a sofa or a chair which you couldn't predict and all chairs looked different around the table so it was uh, in the end also a commercial success so that that was interesting that my own fascination re- uh, resonated uh, with other consumers
1: oh I see okay um and your the pots and and, and vases that you had made for a royal tissue uh, became this sort of critical success that became very sort of synonymous with uh, your work and the way that you view color. Can you describe a little bit about uh, that project and how it how it came to be?
0: Well, this is this was this uh, self initiated B set this crockery what I just talked about. This about mm. what was done as an imp- imperfect surface. So I did that on my own. I did. I went to the. Uh, european ceramic work center for three months and i created this project on my own and then i uh, makum this company royal tichela Makam they called me and they said oh we would like to have this uh, product in production are you open for this and then you know they started to produce so um they took the product and uh and produced it the way they still do so and the vases, the vases, the red white vase comes from the uh, project that I did with pieces out of the archive of museums. So the uh, old mid age handles and and little shards and so the pots I made or the red white vase I made for this particular product. But Makam wanted to have the vase, so they took the vase as a shape and produced the piece.
1: Before we return to Hella, a word from our sponsor, Ford Street Studio. Fort Street Studios' sumptuous carpets are expertly hand-knotted and executed in nuanced color combinations that are the signature of the studio's painterly designs, which originate from watercolor art. With a catalog of over 150 original designs, the brand offers a broad range of options for interior designers to fit any project's needs. Each carpet is customizable in size, shape, and color, as large as 27 feet wide or over 40 feet long for both area rug applications or wall-to-wall. And the company's in-house art studio can scale motifs and repeats to maintain the spirit of each design to adapt to any furniture plan. To create your own bespoke masterpiece carpet, visit fortstreetstudio.com. Compared to the famous designers of the mid-century, who saw color merely in terms of black, white, and gray not to be taken seriously, Hella has changed the perception of what color means in contemporary design. But of course, it's impossible to talk about color without bringing up questions of quality, sustainability, and the social practice of creation. I wanted to ask Hela to explain her thoughts on color for the layman. So much of your work has centered around color and how we perceive it. Can you describe to the listener uh, what is the most misunderstood thing about color and how it should be applied in design?
0: Yeah, so <laughs> color. Well, I I I always uh think of color if if we all have a memory of looking at, the, at great art pieces uh and look at color and then you can really disappear in a certain color. And the colors are so greatly used you really you, you can't stop uh looking at at, at a piece of art. Um, because of the use of color and this depth or this richness is not existing in the in the design world because we have to work with the pigments uh, from larger chemical industry, the print industries, and they make a palette of colors. They have huge amount of colors, so it's not uh, it's not the quantity that is leaking, but the quality is leaking, in my opinion, uh, because they make the colors so stable, they don't change uh, in reaction to the light and uh because you have to they have to you know stability is in industry a very uh, important uh goal to uh, make uh, to and so and this stability of colors is uh, something that i think is against quality because a color is about the reaction on the light so they breathe with the light the color change during the day and that's the richness of it and as a designer we cannot use these pigments because they are very shallow so the 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 ingredients are 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 maybe only three or four ingredients to make a certain pigment and if you make them richer like in art uh then you you could have so much yeah so much richer plastic colors or, or or lacquers for metals and so uh that's why i wanted to work on colors because i, I was really missing this breathing color concept
1: you have been working you had worked with vitra for more than a decade on on a research project and how does a project like like that uh, occur can you tell me what that was because it was a very sort of long-term uh process where you were figuring out their color wheel and 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 everything can you explain a little bit about uh this project uh
0: yes so it all started with uh working on the polar sofa designing the polar sofa uh it's a symmetrical sofa with uh, six different tones of colors of uh of and six different fabrics on one sofa and uh because i don't believe in this junk uh, of one color in your house. Um, and by doing that, we uh, created a relation together and uh, the owner, Rolf Fellbaum asked me, could you look at an Eames lounge chair? Because, uh, Charles, uh, did, uh, a white lounge chair for a boat, uh, very long time ago. And, uh, could you look at the white version again? And so we worked on this white version and, and, and choose a certain leather, uh, made the leather a little bit less, white, less white. So. And then on a certain moment, we started to uh, think of working together on the, on the colors and materials. And I said, I told them, you know, I can't do it as a stylist because I'm, I'm a designer. I can only do it if I really can dive into your archive and understand, uh, what the typical colors and materials of certain times uh, were used. So I dived really deep into this project and uh, became the art director of material and colors at Vitra. And I created this color wheel uh, of a color library uh, of all the classic designers. So Eames, Prouvé, and uh, so on, and all the contemporary designers and looked into their world and what they use. And uh, I created a, a, a realm of, of a certain uh, color shade so the uh, the idea is is to have you have the world of the blacks the world of the whites the greens and the reds and this was the compass that i used for uh, for the whole library and uh and and so i made for each designer their own library and in and, in and as a whole it is the library of vitra so uh this is uh, briefly the, the project that I uh, initiated for Vitra and worked on for several years to develop it into a working tool.
1: And when you were d- digging into those archives and looking at, at the work of uh, Prouvé and Eames and, and uh, all of these different greats from the 20th century, um, is there anything that, that you think people should understand about how they used color and how they thought about color that might be different today?
0: Yeah, the thing is that the materials were totally different and there was not this very um, a rigid way of looking at a, a stableness of color. Uh, so, if, for instance, the glass fiber uh, shells of Eames for the chairs, they Age very nicely. The colors age very nice, and uh, because they change over the over time, uh, and the colors are used are very pale and and, and 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 not so harsh, plasticky. You know, they really have this natural uh, stone. I don't know. Nat- yeah, uh, yeah. Very pleasant atmosphere because of what the material brings and uh so and the polyprop uh, shells the same chair but done in polyprop because then you have another uh price level and the durability is uh, bigger and so on so it's very difficult to get the right colors and and, and mostly how can you age a color like this in a, in a nice in a nice way so that's total way of looking at at plastics and 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 uh, and 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 see how a color could age uh, in, a, in a in an interesting way so I think that's a that could be an example
1: and when we, we speak about colors and how the industry keeps trying to sort of stabilize them and make them more you know, uh, make them last longer. Is this something that is related to the sustainability or sort of like the health factor also of of these kinds of paints and colors? Um, you know, if you made them less stable, uh, I mean, not only would they last less, but is there a you know what is that push and pull between sort of sustainability and which is something you hear a lot about things like in terms of color and paint, because, you know, when you when you talk about design and you talk about the history of design, and, you know, I always hear about lead paints having this sort of like incredible color, but of course, we don't want to use lead in, in paint anymore. Can you explain a little bit about, is that is that part of the, the factoring process when you're thinking about color?
0: Um, yes, it's part of it, but that's something that I also believe in you know you don't want to be poisoned by a certain red so I, I i can live with the fact that we don't have this very bright red because we don't want to die from our uh, colors but it is often also that certain colors on plastic chairs for instance for instance the color white Often the, the plastic is so thin that you can look through and you see the iron structure in it or the metal structure in it. So uh, these are also uh, qualifications. Also black is quite difficult to make a deep black plastic. For instance, that's also something, uh, uh, difficult to make. But I think the stableness, what, uh, what, uh, why we have this harsh requirements in industry for stableness. I think that's because industry wants to be safe or companies want to be safe. You know, you don't want to have a customer coming back after two weeks or after a year or two years, uh, that the sun was, uh, degrading or defading their colors. Uh, on the chair so it is to to have a very safe yeah you know that you don't get claims from customers that's that's why they want to have this very stable uh, flat color ranges
1: and when it comes to the the show um, at the Gropius Bau Woven Cosmos can you take us a a little bit about take us through the show. And and what was it about if we could uh, visit virtually um, in our mind's eye? Uh, Tell me a little bit about what that show was like?
0: Well, the show was uh, about weaving. I did a show before in Paris about weaving. And uh, in Paris, I did more, uh, there was the idea of creating machines, uh, new uh, looms, because I think the looms in industry, you know, these are so, such uh, uh, efficient machines that you cannot, as a designer, you cannot go into, you you cannot design from within the machine because they are just programmed uh, every second a thread goes in and out. Uh, it's all about efficiency. So I thought if I want to change something in this whole idea of fast fashion, this very poor way of weaving, we are losing our culture of weaving, our our uh, knowledge about this craft, I thought I have to build new machines because uh, in these new looms I can start to, to design my questions or design or weave my answers in this machine so also about 3d weaving was a topic that i really like to explore because there is a lot of 3d knitting but there is no 3d uh weaving yet it is in industry they're building looms but these looms you know you this is like you you these are for nerds you really cannot go into this machine as a creative person so the, the, the interwoven, uh, 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 exhibition in Paris at Lafayette was about machines, creating machines. And then the new show in, uh, Kropiusbau was more investigating in what is the cultural meaning of weaving. So beyond technique and uh, techniques and materials. So reflecting more on this uh, idea and the philosophical aspects of textile. And can I, is it? Does it have a healing aspect? That was also something that was interested interested in me. So I built a cosmic loom, because spinning is uh, is in the old uh, in the old world uh, was often uh, about uh, to understand how the world turns. the The spindle was a was uh, often a metaphor for for uh, the Earth and the sun uh, uh, circling around each each other um, so, and, uh, and, and and I wanted to weave uh, on the cosmic loom and uh, a new texture for the world. So I also invited a uh, shamanen uh, to ask, what does this building need? Uh, what cloth does this city need? So there was this whole cosmic idea on weaving and there was a room where we also had a, a, a s- A a machine. We built a machine where people, the visitors, could spin a yarn together in a certain dance. So they danced the yarn, Uh, and uh, and in another machine we built, uh, we did a 3D weaving, and we made like solar yarns in it, uh, cubicle forms that goes open and closed. And uh, there was a kind of sculptural pieces, but also an idea of can you. Can you come up with a uh, what could be in, in the new what could this craft mean in the future? So I was thinking if I do the three D weaving and I make models, ar- architectural soft architectural models, maybe I can replace beton uh, or cement, which is also very poison in, in the in the building industry. And uh, what if I make like uh, could you make like uh solar panels as textile cubicle forms um or a balcony that hangs flat if there is no sun and it pops up when there is sun and it's all a 3d woven kind of object so it was more a specul- pe- speculative design <laughs> And yeah and I did uh for myself more uh, on the on a three d shakar uh, loom a sample loom that I bought three years ago I wanted to weave myself again and i I created kind of yeah you know, windows i i, I it, it's a play of 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 yarns it's more an artistic work an artistic uh Playground for myself to understand again weaving and and many many different jars that you can't use in industry and create artworks uh, and that was also hanging in the show.
1: And when it comes to building these new machines, I mean weaving, of course, is one of the oldest uh, crafts and techniques uh, known to man. Was it is it difficult to kind of come up with something in weaving that hasn't been done before?
0: yes but then i'm i'm i think when it's not done before then I think i flourish i really <laughs> i really enjoy it very much to be a beginner in in a certain field and uh and move around and get lost and i've got that's that's when I feel really uh, at ease when it's when nobody ever touches touch uh, touch this topic so uh no i no i you can really let me <laughs> let me play around. <laughs>
1: You've said before that you see weaving as having a social element to its creation that has been lost. Uh, to the modern world, what can we regain by bringing this social practice back to textiles?
0: Well, weaving ha- is, is an ancient craft, and it has also many metaphors in our language. It's really deeply linked in our times. Uh, and it's, it questions sustainability. It, it has this social responsibility because it is linked to... Uh, to to slavery in the in, in 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 other countries. So it is it is so you know, and it, it it there is so much poison involved and the finishing and everything. So and we we all have so much uh, we deal so much with textiles in our life. We sleep under it. We, we have, we wear it. Our curtains are from textile. It's in our cars. It's in the buses. It's like, you know, you have so many textiles around you. So, uh, and the weaving was in the old days, uh, a way of, uh, communication. Uh, so people came together before industrialization, uh, to, to share, uh, stories and to talk with each other. Uh, and there's also a lot of patterns, uh, uh, that communicate certain, uh, stories or narrative or or, or cultures uh, are uh, visible in patterns. So it's such a rich topic. And um, I also did this, once I did this project for IKEA, and uh, they asked me to do something in textiles. And I said, well, I, I would like to do something uh, and they also worked together with unicef on a project in india and uh, so we worked uh, we built a workshop especially for this project and asked the women from the village to come uh, to come to work in this in this uh, new workshop and and sewing uh, animal masks because that was the design that I made and uh, so first of all IKEA and UNICEF they needed to uh, let uh, build schools for the children so that the children could go to school so the mothers could come to the workshop and make these animal masks and these ladies are all coming from everywhere from India because they are married uh, and they go to a certain part uh, of india and they don't know anybody and they sit in their houses and then they all came together in this workshop and they were embroidery uh, doing this embroidery and sewing uh, of this animal mask and there was this whole social gathering suddenly and it was so rich it was such a uh, a good way of, uh, of, of 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 designing something that is so much more than just a product you know that you really can change something in people's lives and uh, yeah, so that's I think what textile can bring bring us. It brings us together, but you know, as soon as it is fast in the fast fashion industry, and uh, it is is it's 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 bringing the worst in social matters. So you have these two parameters, and 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 uh, what is uh, and. The social aspect is getting lost, and the social aspect is in craft so important. It's such an important value that we have to cherish.
1: And speaking of uh, sort of sustainability and and policy and, and the law, if you could pass, you know, one mandatory law, Hella's law, um, having to do with uh, sustainability and and practices and design, what would you? What would Hella's law be?
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I, re- I recently uh, I was reading this book "Material Matters." Do you know this book? I do. Yeah, yeah, and I really, I really, it, it, I find it very interesting. This whole idea of uh, giving uh, material rights, so the Universal Declaration of Material Rights, um, so that materials have an identity and are not anonymous. Um, because uh, then they stay with us. They're not just poison or they're not uh, trash if if a, if a certain product is at this end of his life. And also this whole idea, what I also like very much, um, that that you're not the owner that ownership is is changing that you as a consumer are not the owner of an object so it always stays from from the company where you buy the piece from and so if you're if the product fa- is failing or you don't want it anymore it's out of fashion or uh, whatever your life is changing you can give the product back and uh, and the company takes care of it and re reuse the materials within the product and uh so the ownership is no longer a risk because often you think you you buy something you think what to do if i if i don't want it anymore or if if i if my if i want to live in a different way or whatever you know and then i have this rubber or have this waste what to do with this waste and it's not waste a piece of furniture is a material mine. You know, there is a lot, it's it's, it's a deposit, there is a lot in it. And so I, I really believe when a company is still owning the piece and, and, and it could take it back and reuse uh, the materials, then the design will also change because they benefit if a certain product uh, have a longer lifespan because then they can reuse the materials much easier and they can uh take it apart easily and so on so i think uh we have to change ownership uh uh, and the companies have to be the ones that uh that are responsible for the for the product till the end and um yeah that's something that i really believe in
1: and do you think that the the pandemic has sort of changed design for the better or do you think that it in 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 an essence, slowing us down a little bit and thinking more about what we consume, or is it actually kind of accelerated um, the trends that we had before for more, <laughs> more disposable shopping, you know, more shipping, more everything.
0: Mm. No, let's keep let's keep it positive. No, I I really believe in in the common sense and that we all saw what could happen to the world. And uh, if we keep on going how we were used to do, so I really believe we all are, it was a wake up call. And um, so I, I also see, it. I have t- teenagers in my house and, and they they really have a total other way of, of, of looking at of objects or materials. They, they only want to buy second life, Uh, products uh, vintage or you know it's it's really not cool to have something new so i i really see a new generation that is ready for change and uh and maybe it goes not so quick that you see it as a result of this pandemic but uh we are heading forward to another to another new world i'm i'm totally uh convinced about this
1: Thank you to Hella, her studio manager, Amanda, and to everyone at Maharam for making this episode happen. The editor of The Grand Tourist is Stan Hall. To keep this going, please follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein to learn more and sign up for updates at thegrandtourist.net. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen and leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time.